0: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss. What
1: phone is
2: that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They
1: never go home. They never go home. those does that work? That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, oh, you can laugh. walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You well, don't know what you're talking about. Well, yeah. you know anyway to... I'd say it to you, thanks, and I'll say it oh, to you now. i am down to our field and we'll see them up like with what you're doing down here, you show me, man.
2: Thanks for taking the time to listen to the Irish Times' second captain's football podcast after a story filled weekend in the Premier League. So much to talk about, Kennedy. The Jamie Vardy inspired Leicester City comeback against Man United. Coach Rogers getting it all wrong against Big Sam. And Frank Lampard, remembering that he actually plays for Man City now for just long enough to volley one in against Chelsea. I have expressed my criticisms of the -the over-the-top non-celebration of goals by players against their former clubs on this programme. Now I must say, my issue, it's not just the refusal to celebrate, which can be understandable, but the extravagant hand gestures that often accompany the non-celebration to the point that it becomes a sort of celebration of the former club. Uh, in itself, but I can f- probably forgive Frank Lampard when he retires. He's far more likely to think about his 13 years at Chelsea than his 13 weeks at Man City.
3: Yeah, um, fundamentally insincere, though, isn't it? I mean, it is Lampard all over. He's an insincere kind of guy. He's you think got- so? Well, come on. Well, what was all that stuff? Oh, you know, I'm lost for words. Oh, oh, as though he was about to break down in tears in the post-match interview. Get a grip, Lampard. Why are you playing for Manchester City if you care so much about Chelsea? They're the only team that can beat Chelsea, realistically, in the Premier League this season. You've just joined the only team that can beat Chelsea. You've just scored a goal in a critical match between the two teams against Chelsea. You're the first Premier League player to actually do anything to stop Chelsea's remorseless accumulation of points this season. So please don't pretend to me that Chelsea
2: means anything to you. Because he would not have joined Manchester City if it was that big a deal. Well, presumably he would have stayed at Chelsea if they'd given him a nice fat two-year contract. Oh, so so if,
3: if I can't play for you, I'm going to go and play against your cutthroat rivals. I'm going to try and cut your throat. Yeah. I care about you that much. Come on. Lampard cares about Lampard. It's always been like that. Lampard cares about Frank Lampard. It's always been about looking after number one. And for a long time, the interests of number one and Chelsea Football Club were perfectly aligned uh, in sync, in harmony, and rhythm. Every goal that Frank Lampard scored was a goal for Chelsea Football Club because he played for them. Uh, but now he plays for their direct rivals. Right. He scores a goal against them. So please don't give me any of that. Because Lampard is, uh, is absolutely delighted. Whoever didn't give him a contract to Chelsea, whoever thought Cesc Fabregas would be a better bet just because Cesc Fabregas is, you know, younger and more talented, um... You know, they've got a lot to think about on the, on the way home, on, on the, the jet home or the or the, the bus home, or whatever way Chelsea get back from Manchester. They've got a few things to think about, don't they? He's given them a couple of things to think about. Mr. Frank Lampard, 36 years old and still uh, still walking out there, still scoring the goals that matter, you know? It seems to me that... I don't know gonna... who it was who thought Fabregas was a better idea, but, you mm-hmm. know, I didn't see Fabregas score any goals in the chelsea Man City game. Did you?
2: No, there was zero goals scored. No, no.
3: So what, what do you think Frank Lampard's mood was? After he scored that goal, and after he and and when he was walking off that pitch, what do you think he was thinking? No, I,
2: I, I is think he thinking? It may thinking have been conflicted. Don't forget the conflicted amazing, the amazing reception he got from the Chelsea fans. Did you saw that shot where he's taking the Chelsea fans' applause and then the Man City fans are applauding? Well,
3: of course, Frank Lampard isn't gonna isn't gonna come off. And say in his post match interview, yeah, those Chelsea uh, plebs all uh, giving me a big uh, hand at the end. There, great, but you know, I mean, really, these lads should grow up. They should realise that I'm a professional. I played for them, sure. I was a Chelsea player for many years, but uh, now I'm a Manchester City player and I scored a goal against them. They clap me. Well, I suppose it's better than um, You know, I don't, I don't often get that from opposing fans who, who's, who I've just scored against. You know, it would be in bad taste for him to do that. He has to be aware of his, his market. You his think audience. he was ecstatic?
2: You think he was walking off Of course
3: ecstatic. he was ecstatic. Of course he was absolutely ecstatic. He just stuffed it right up. Whoever it was at Chelsea decided he wasn't worth another contract. You say I can't do it anymore. Fabregas as well. He always had a rivalry of Fabregas whenever they played each other. I think Fabregas was probably fairly sickened by it. He was quite happy to be able to stick one on Fabregas. He was delighted. So he's, he's pretending afterwards for public relations reasons uh, to be cut up or, or, you know, oh, I don't know, what have I done? You know, it just, it's just I find it insulting to the intelligence. I would prefer, I think a lot of people would prefer Lampard if they didn't get that sense of him as being a very political you know, very sort of. Oh, you know, watch, watch what I'll say here. You know, keep my nose clean. You know, got to keep. I mean, there's this. There's this amazing article
2: about him today. Well, let's just let's get into your report on sport. We need that music.
3: If he was just a little bit more real, you know. No, I mean he is real. There are real things about Frank Lampard. His, his, his competitiveness is real. His professionalism is real. You know, he's the he. he it's, it's a really rare thing that he's got, this sort of uh, relentless competitive drive that he has, even at the age that he has, after the success that he has. And all the money that he's made, which I was able to read about today in the Daily Mail, there's an amazing article about him. Um, I'm going to read you a couple of selections on because it's, it's just that good. Frank Lampard at Manchester City has established a reputation for his impeccable manners. And his work rate on the trading ground. His impeccable manners. We're talking about a 36-year-old man here. A 36-year-old multi-millionaire, or maybe billionaire. Uh, as I read down through this article, his appetite is... It. it. He was summoned from the substitute bench uh, and scored Manchester City's equaliser against his former club, Chelsea. It was dreamy stuff. Um, and then I should I should mention that the headline of this article is... This is the headline. Frank Lampard is the ultimate professional. Brackets and did sit-ups while waiting, waiting his turn in shooting practice. close Brackets and finally celebrates first Manchester City goal with fiance Christine Bleakley at San Carlo.
2: <laughs> it's not me.
3: That's uh, that's a five-line headline as it appears on uh, the Daily Mail. UK. Um, anyway, he dined at Manchester restaurant San Carlo with fiance Christine, Christine Bleakley and seemed to be in high spirits despite taking two points away from his beloved Chelsea. Okay, what a surprise that is. City staff knew the stories about his extra shuttle runs after training and his dedication to the <laughs> game. Um, uh, even during the World Cup when Lampard was on the fringe of the team, he would sit down at England's URCA training when he was waiting his turn the of uh, the ball drills and do sit-ups. Um, but it, it was a small thing, a minor detail, but he was the only England player doing it. That discipline was instilled at a young age, blah, 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 blah. When he is off the training field and away with the team, he spends time plotting the next move in the London property market. Between him and his dad, Frank Lampard Sr., they own half the capital. Or at least it seems that way. I don't think he really owns half the capital. That would make him the world's richest man, you know? He just owns a sizable chunk of London. But, you know, what's the problem? He's as, he's as smart off the field as he is on it. It's just another charming story in the richest to richest story. Charming chapter in the richest to richest story of Frank Lampard. Um, they are family who have always planned for the future. Um, uh, you know, a comfort blanket for many of the players, an emotional crush for the youngsters in Roy Hodgson's squad. When he spoke with the media, he held the room so well that he sounded like the manager.
2: This is, a, this is John the Baptist stuff here. <laughs>
3: this is absolute John the Baptist. One day he should be the manager. He has all the requirements. Lampard is a smart guy, responding in Latin to a Manchester City official <laughs> who had also studied the language when they were at school. Football is Lampard's first language, though. I'm not going to read out the rest of you. Okay. You'll have to check it out yourself. Amazing stuff. But I, I think the key detail there is that when he was dining with his fiancée, Christine Bleakley, he did seem to be in high spirits, even though he'd taken to Premiership points, precious premiership points away from Chelsea. I mean, when you saw the faces in the Chelsea crowd, they were so good it. The Chelsea fans, were. it was really, oh, no, this is awful, you know. Yeah. Oh, But they had to clap, Politely. you know, great. But, you know, he Mourinho was, for me, Mourinho uh, was the guy who's done the best after He said, look, don't talk to me about this. He actually seemed genuinely a little bit annoyed by it. I mean, he'd said before, I was surprised when he went to City, you know, what's he doing that for? Um, but he said, look, when you join a direct rival, love stories are over. I mean, that's the way it is. You know what? That, there's this big article, it, um, the bit that I'm not going to read, goes on to explain oh, Chelsea's still his first, well, not his first love, that was West Ham, but his, uh, his, his biggest love. Uh, and it always will be that way. they always be his club. Um, but, you know, this is just insulting because you, you just wouldn't see this. I mean, you know, can you imagine Stephen Gerrard joining Manchester United for a season at the end of his career?
2: Well, He was going to join Chelsea earlier in his
3: career. He didn't, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lampard happened to be already playing for the richest and most powerful club. I I guarantee you that if a richer and more powerful club had come along at any point to try and take Lampard from Chelsea, he probably would have done a season to do, you know. But I can't, I, you know, I can't see. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to hold Jared necessarily up as some kind of exemplar, you know. I mean, he. Uh, how many league titles has he won as, as always said about you know Lampard's made sure he's won Lampard might win another one might actually win another one at Chelsea's expense I don't Please. think Mourinho
2: can be feel the right to be aggrieved in any way though F-
3: oh, M- Mourinho I think was just reacting against all the all the nonsense that was being talked he's right, like yeah, it he's like I don't believe it. these uh, histories of and then like he didn't actually do scare quotes with his fingers, but it was you could obviously hear them in his passion and heart. Maybe I'm a bit pragmatic. But Lampard, of course, is just the same. You know, he's an absolute arch-pragmatist, um, uh, a creature of ambition. He's had a great career, largely thanks to that, I think. But, you know, that's that was the story of what happened yesterday. Jose
2: uh, has his hands full with Pellegrini. Um, Pellegrini doesn't like Jose. Well,
3: I thought Pellegrini might... Might be having a go at the referee after this one because there, there was a lot of Pellegrini is a, is, a, is interesting in that he often doesn't say anything about the referee at all, but when he does, it's it's always a mad, like eye bulging, mad tirade, and he gets banned. This is this is what he does. It's, it's one extreme or the other. But I I thought yeah, you know, Zabaleta was sent off. I think rightly, but you could argue maybe maybe a touch harshly. And then there was several. Fouls by Chelsea players, which clearly should have been yellow cards. You know, if the referees being consistent, they weren't. Uh, you know, tactical fouls, trips. Fabregas got away with a really blatant one. I thought Pellegrini is definitely going to go mad here if they if they lose. Um, you know, with ten men. But I forgot that uh, City were playing against uh, Chelsea, and he really, 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 <laughs> really dislikes Jose Mourinho. So uh, if he's only going to really go for one person, uh, it would be. Uh, Mourinho rather than the referee. And in this instance, you know, he he was saying... Essentially, he's insulting... He's trying to insult Jose Mourinho in a way which is never going to insult Jose Mourinho. Mourinho's used to hearing all this. And when he hears it from Pellegrini, um, especially after Chelsea have just drawn one all away to City and are way ahead of them in the table. It's not going to bother him in the, in the slightest. But Pellegrini says, we played 90 minutes against a small team trying to defend... I wouldn't be happy to play that way. Ten players defended their own half, they scored a counter-attack, and they continued to defend until the end. Um, we played against the same, uh, exactly the same team, we played against Stoke here. Essentially Stoke, Stoke who, who beat City uh, 1-0 with a defend and counter-attack performance like which you would expect. Uh, he's comparing Chelsea to them. Uh, Mourinho, you know, you're know going to have to do a bit better than this, I think, if you really want to annoy him. Um... You know, he just making the point. Well, many times he says he doesn't speak about me and my team, but he continues to do so. Don't ask me about his words. Um, just making the point that uh, that essentially we were uh, we were many we were two points ahead, and we came to play at the house of the leader, and now we're three points ahead. So I'm happy enough. I mean, whether Pellegrini what Pellegrini says is true, uh, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think Chelsea did what they did last season. They're going to try and not concede because they know that they'll get a chance. And that's the way that it worked out. Uh, and in the end, you know, maybe... I mean, Mourinho was, didn't criticise Shirley, but let's see if Shirley starts the next game, he let James Miller go. Um, and City managed to equalise. In a situation when I thought, OK, that City are done here. I thought when once they were 1-0 down with a you know, man down, that there's no way they're going to come back into this. But, you know, they played pretty well. Um...
2: Yeah, we're miles into this show, though, Ken, and we haven't mentioned the madness at the what is it, the King Power Stadium?
3: The King Power Stadium, yeah. I mean, I, I can't remember seeing anything like this. I mean, uh, um, you know, you, you're looking at, at the first ten minutes of the game; it's two nil to Manchester United. You're thinking, well, I mean, it, it, the two 0 lead only lasted for you know fourteen seconds, I think, of the of the restart, um, but. You know, when they made it three-one, then you're thinking, "Well, they're actually looking pretty good now." I mean, these players—Falcao, Di Maria—are another level. Um, it's very difficult to stop them scoring, despite the vulnerabilities that they have. Um, maybe reminding you a little bit of Liverpool last season, and suddenly this collapse happens. I mean, what can you say about it? It's—it's it's just. Uh, I mean, Gary Lineker was—is uh, obviously a Leicester old. Oh boy! So this is the greatest performance in the history of Leicester City. It's the greatest uh, performance, the greatest ever result. It can't be far off. I mean, there weren't too many, um, and and it was interesting to see Nigel Pearson afterwards talking about talking about it in quite thoughtful and matter of fact way, just saying, yeah, well, when you play, you know, when you play against a team like this, you're going they're going to leave you a lot of space. Vardy, who was the man of the match, talked about how we needed to be space there behind their fullbacks. And every time the ball was near him or every time, you know, he was running to that kind of space, usually behind uh, United's left back. And, you know, there was a moment, I think, in the first half where he he got the ball, there was a couple of players to his left. But rather than try and slow up and pick up a pass, he just went went straight for the box. You know, he'd just been told, just go for them at every opportunity. And uh, it worked out repeatedly. I mean, they did have a, a couple of lucky incidents with the referee, I thought. Um, I mean, the first goal possibly could have been ruled out. If the li- oftentimes, the linesman says, oh, I think that ball's out of play. He couldn't really see it. Um, the penalty was should have been a foul first on Rafael. One for the Raphael, Raphael. Yeah. But, I mean, again, Raphael, what are you doing? You know, this is crazy what he did. He, he, he got knocked over, thought it was going to be a foul, saw it wasn't, <laughs> flew into a rage, jumped up and barged into... Vardy for a, a, an automatic penalty. You know, what's it was, I mean, again, the, the point is, well, if one of these isn't a foul, then maybe the other one isn't. Uh, but the argument against that is that, well, the Vardy wouldn't look like a shoulder charge, even if he kind of used his arm as well. Whereas Raphael just ran into his opponent's back.
2: The other point is that it's a fairly low-risk move by Vardy because mm. he's just trying to keep a ball in play and maybe get in on goal. Whereas it's very high-risk play by Raphael, who doesn't use... Paul Raphael doesn't engage his brain uh, quite as often as a top player probably should. He certainly seems to have those rash moments. But it's funny you mentioned Vardy after the game there. This is one of the features of Manchester United's decline in the last two seasons. Teams beat them who you weren't expecting to beat them. And then, I don't want to say crow about it afterwards, but Talk about it afterwards. Well, of course, I mean, there's so many so many weaknesses in that team. I'm thinking back to Tim Sherwood when Spurs beat them. They were <laughs> said, yeah, To be honest, I'm pretty <laughs> unhappy. The yeah, they were there for the take. I'm pretty unhappy with how we played. Sure, we've come to Old Trafford and won, but we should have yeah. won by a lot more. Uh, and now you get a guy who most people have never heard of saying, yeah, well, it was pretty easy. Pearson just told us to tack them down the flanks, stay in those positions, <laughs> and we'd obviously score loads of goals.
3: Yeah, um, you know, and oh, it, it was just... I mean, it was interesting, though, to see that Lujanel... You know, criticises his team in quite trenchant terms afterwards. He doesn't say, oh, the referee gave them back the game. He says, we gave them back the game. That was our fault. You're 3-1 up. You can't lose. You cannot lose in that situation. Um, Talks about we have too many players who want to go for goal and seek seek for the goal. So I don't know what he's going to do. I mean, because if he's saying that, then he's maybe got to change the balance of his team a bit. But each time he changes the balance of his team, he leaves out a superstar now, you know what I mean. So the player who lost out today was Mata. Mata is maybe the the most docile of these players, the mo- the easiest to to put on the bench. What's he going to do? <laughs> you know, is Mata sitting there steaming, you know, sulking. No, 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 it's it's all right. Mata's much too polite to really cause a scene. Imagine it's Van Persie there.
2: It caused a bit of a scene. In, was it his last game for Man City? He was. He was either, for chelsea he was either substituted early or maybe yeah. not bra- I mean he looked very very angry I think he happened substituted quite early mm.
3: well that was for that was me and, but I mean again it was you know, Mourinho kind of going Ugh, I, it's difficult even to look at you to be honest you're, with your pathetic rage you know he's just he's just not one of life's angry men you know he's a, he's a nice guy he's a good player eight goals in his last 10 matches on the bench okay I'm part of a squad here. You know, imagine you. you imagine it's Robin Van Persie leaving on the bench. Do you think he's going to sit there and be, and be nice about it? Do you think he's going to be chatting to everyone on the bus afterwards? No. I don't think, you know, Wayne Rooney, Van Hal said before this game, he's my captain, he shall always play. So, he seems to be safe. Falcao? Probably going to play Falcao, you know? And Di Maria has, has been their best player. So, yeah. Rooney, Falcao, Di Maria all there. Van Persie? Has, is Van Persie doing enough? I don't know. Is Rooney... Rooney's going Rooney's gonna to play anyway. It doesn't matter what he does. Um, so, yeah, it's a really interesting um, situation. Was
2: Rooney leading by example as far as you can see?
3: Well, I mean, you know, the, it's, it's, there wasn't a great deal of leadership on the field evident from anyone in that last half hour. There was a lot of anger evident from Wayne Rooney after the third goal. He was going around shouting at people, smashing his hand into his fist. Maybe he was angry at himself because he was the man who'd given the ball away with a bad clearance and Leicester worked it straight back into the box and Cambiaso scored um but you know I well suppose the captain even when he's at fault has to impress on people the importance of the situation I'm sure that's what Rooney was trying to do but no there was no uh there was no leadership um it's a, it's a job maybe that he needs to 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 learn how to do um he did talk a little bit about himself um because people have I mean he's saying I'm happy to play out wide I can do a job there and I can do a job up front because Van Halen said yeah I think um, he said uh, Rooney can play in more positions uh, he says um, I was not so satisfied with Rooney as a striker and Madison midfielder that's why I'm changing this was before the match uh, Rooney can play in more positions he's a multifunctional player I've tried him in a striker's position he's played well but not spectacular Falcao is a striker and I think he can do it better so that's he told Rooney is now saying, um, I'm happy to play out wide, I can do a job there, and I can do a job up front. Now, this is the same way Rooney, who wasn't happy to play out wide when it was for Manchester United against Real Madrid a couple of years ago, but things change, people change. Uh, he's changed, he says, uh, I'm not the player I was, says Rooney, and people are, this is a sharp intake of breath, is Rooney finally admitting what people have been saying? I feel I've progressed my game, so I agree with the people who say my game has changed, I did too much running when I was younger, and then I didn't have the energy to get myself into goal-scoring positions in the box. I'm a cleverer player now, and I know when to run into the box and when not. As a result, more chances have come my way, and I've scored a lot more goals. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. But you were mentioning this: the the Leicester players maybe giving chapter and verse on their game plan. Mm. The king of of that, there are two rival. Prince is jousting for the title of king of the post match. Well, this is this is how we did it. The plan came together today, and I'm going to tell you all in my detail how it happened. Brendan Rogers is one, and the <laughs> other is Big Sam, and uh, Big Sam Allardyce. So uh, the game, obviously uh, on on Saturday, brought these head to head. And I think on this occasion, Sam took the honors. Well, he would do because he's the one explaining a three-one win, whereas Brendan Rogers has to justify a three-one. Disappointing three-one defeat.
2: What was Aldo saying?
3: I'm going to tell you a lot of what Aldo was saying, just to give you just to give you a flavour of just how ebullient Big Sam was in this uh, in in the post-match, the Monday morning, the Saturday evening quarterbacking uh, that he was uh, indulging in those again. Um, I think we did a high press based on the fact it's the first time we've been back in the Champions League for four years. That's such a big game for Liverpool to be back there physically and emotionally. Um, we thought they'd want to control the tempo, get it quite slow to begin with, feel their way into the game. If you've got two players up front with the energy of Valencia's hockey, you can do that. And then, of course, our tactic today was to close Gerard down in the ball, which was Stuart Downing's job. Um, not only did he do that, he was creative as well. That's why the first half is particularly good. We were really doing most of our defending on the halfway line or just inside our half, rather than on our eighteen-yard line. So that's why we created so many opportunities and scored a couple of very, very good goals it was part of the game plan we'll always try and play out from the back let them play out but go and press them it's not about shutting them from the keeper it's about allowing the space to let them think they can play out then pressing them they've been renowned for doing that but we obviously did it much better than them particularly on the first half it goes on and on um, oh yeah well I mean it's, a, it's an amazing plan it deserves the, the attention of the world does it
2: deserve the attention of the coach of the next team you're going to play against to now know how you're going to set up
3: a different team different ah. plan uh, he mentions Alex Ferguson a couple of. Well, he he's, he actually lectures Brendan Rogers a little bit. He, he's got a few words of words of advice on handling away, uh, handling European matches. Um, Bolton, this is from Bolton, having been in Europe under Sam. We looked around the European world. Everyone flew back straight after the game. Our idea was not to fly back until the day after. And in the home games, it was about making sure we had enough players in the squad and being brave enough to change them. Um, that was the research we did especially when you speak to the top man, which was...
2: Ferguson? Yes.
3: (laughs) You've got two teams. You've got to have one for Europe and one for the Premier League. Um, uh, It's not impossible to stop it. This is the Champions League hangover, the post-European slump. But when I spoke to Sir Alex, who is the master at it, he was the first man to start rotation 20 years ago. He just said, you need two teams. Uh, So basically, he's he's instructing Rodgers on what he could do better based on his European experience. Uh, Rodgers himself did talk a lot about Europe one other thing from Sam though before we move to Rodgers because he was saying it's important thing is to integrate your new players West Ham have signed new players um, and and the unflattering comparisons are drawn between West Ham's new signings who who all seem to have started really well and Liverpool's who are all currently looking a little bit lost and mm-hmm. um, we have a good dressing room, first and foremost, Sam. but more important is the backroom staff, the coaching staff, the administrative staff, and our player liaison officers who settle the families as soon as I can. I'm forever pestering them, saying, have they got the right place to live? Get them out of the hotel as quick as you can. Get them as many English uh, lessons as quick as you can. Make sure the family at home knows where the doctor is, where's the best school, knows how to shop at the supermarket. Can they read the labels? If they can't, get someone there who can, because they might be buying dog food instead of stew. Who knows? What religion are they? Where's the nearest church? If they're religious, where can they go and support that religion? It's something I've done for many, many years. Where can they go and support that religion? What? Is a great line. There it is. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, Sam reveals he shops at Tesco. But Rogers, you know, was in then, and he was being asked about this stuff. Uh, obviously, not a great result, and this fact that they played in Champions League during the during the week. Rogers saying there's a big emotion with that competition. For for us, we have to focus on our next game. It's a tiring competition, one that's mentally draining, but we've earned the right to be in that competition. So they go on, how's being in the Champions League mentally tiring? The preparation time, the travel time, then you need your players in recovery time, Roger says. Now, can I just remind everybody that Liverpool played one match so far in the Champions League that was on the Tuesday before this game, and it was at home? It was at home. So I don't know what the travel time was for the squad. Half an hour? 45 minutes maybe
2: Yeah It wouldn't imagine me Any more than that
3: I wouldn't have really thought It was that Draining Physically or mentally The one Match That they've played so far At home in the Champions League Maybe when they're You know A little bit into the Champions League Season Been shuttling back and forth Across Europe You know Out to Bulgaria
2: Is this in addition to the uh, Alan Pardew Excuses Canon of excuses
3: (laughs) Well Alan Pardew Doesn't get to make this Oh Alan Pardew In fairness has If you go to Sackpardew.com as everybody in Saint James's Park, or at least those who hadn't had their leaflets confiscated by the stewards, were advising you to do uh, the other day. Somewhat haggard looking on the part, I have to say, looks like a man under a little bit of pressure. Um, but you'll see that the Europa League has been a has been a major bugbear of his. He really hates that competition, uh, and it's one of the main reasons why uh, Newcastle have lost a lot of
2: games. That's the end of Canaries. report on sport. So he's almost like having
3: a second captain, isn't he? Second captain,
2: first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler is here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck <laughs> happened? No, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it.
1: It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all it's the opposite of that it's persuaded of the world outside of that that's why sport's important
2: Dion Fanning was at Upton Park to see Liverpool suffer that defeat to West Ham now Dion Big Sam and uh, Brendan Rogers are uh, we were talking maybe two of the managers who most like to talk about when a plan comes together in great detail after they've won anyway and there was plenty of detail by Big Sam on how he unpicked Liverpool why do you think they won?
0: Um. I think you know West Ham did what they wanted to do very well uh but there is a pattern over the last couple of matches where people have have talked up um the uh the game plan of of the opposition against Liverpool when you could argue that that the game plan is very is very simple if you if you can stop Steven Gerrard playing which isn't which isn't very difficult uh, you will get at Liverpool, and you will get at Liverpool's defence, which isn't very well organised, and you'll you'll get chances. Uh, and I think that's that was, you know, Liverpool were two two goals down after seven minutes, um, both both bad goals to give away. And uh, and I think that's what while they keep doing that and they keep doing it as they did last season, uh, teams are gonna are gonna get chances. And when Liverpool don't have Suarez, they. They won't overcome them. As, they won't overcome these problems as easily, and subsequently, then you will have managers giving your reasons why they won. But I think a lot of the time, it's coming down to the same problems that Liverpool have had, you know, under Brendan Rodgers, I and mean, this this didn't begin this season.
3: Uh, I mean, we will get on to that. You mentioned the Gerrard uh, issue, which seems to be a growing concern. But um, I know Sam Alvarez, he, he does talk a lot about his his wins in a way, which makes it sound as though he's trying to get more credit for himself. But maybe he does deserve a bit of credit. I mean, he was a guy who was in trouble last season. Uh, There was talk about the board uh, wanting to impose a different style of football and so on. Uh, And it did certainly seem to be in evidence um, when they they beat Liverpool. Jimmy Floyd-Hasselbank, though, made the scathing point... Uh, that they, uh, when asked to to explain why they were playing so much better, he said, "Well, they don't have any Carroll, so they have to try and play football." Is this another team that's better without Andy Carroll?
0: Well, I think when you have Andy Carroll in the side, uh, whether you intend to or not, there is you know teams end up just looking for this this huge uh, totem up front. They're 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 kind of magnetically drawn to him. So even if you were to tell a team play football, play you know like David Moyes, play six hundred passes uh you would just walk onto the pitch, see Andy Carroll looming up there and launch it so uh i think without him teams do do that i think you know west ham have have signed you know they've signed they've signed good players they have tried to change the style but until uh until they played liverpool they'd lost their previous two home games so um now afterwards sam did say that the only game they played badly was was against you know of those of the games this season was was against southampton and they probably were a bit unlucky to lose the Spurs. He would also point to you know the, the form they showed against Hull on Monday night to uh, to to get back into that game. But uh, again, I think. You know, while they are playing a different type of football, Liverpool are making it easy for teams to play football around them.
2: One of the points that uh, Sam Ardis raised was that Liverpool were coming off the back of a Champions League of their, um, well, this current team's debut in the Champions League. If you take my point, and that that was going to be something that they could exploit, that they they would have invested a lot of emotion in that. And Rogers was willing to take that excuse as well. I mean, he's talking about. The travel and recovery being physically and mentally draining around European football is this a little bit worrying? Given that they had actually only played one game and that was at home on the previous Tuesday. Yeah, I
0: don't think it, I don't think it really stands up for for this game. And they played Villa. Okay, there was an international week weekend the week before that, but uh, again there was there was plenty of time before a Saturday evening game. And they lost at home to Aston Villa. Um, so I don't. It, it doesn't really stack up. It's something that people have pointed out. This season that Liverpool don't have the advantage they had last season, and it may be one of those things that you can point to as a reason for last season's form, uh, and this may be a truer reflection of of where Liverpool where Liverpool stand again, especially without Suarez and Daniel Sturridge at the moment. Mm.
3: Do, I mean, there seems to be quite a lot of uncertainty. Um, I, I mean, the, the selections have been a bit inconsistent from Rodgers. I mean, he, you know, he's trying to rotate, he's trying to. I suppose, pick the players who are in condition, um, which is always tricky uh, for any manager. But, you know, when, when we look at what's actually going on, the defence particularly particular, there's a lot of shuffling around. One consistent element of it is uh, Seaman Mignolet, uh, but he, in a way, seems to be the most imperiled component of it.
0: Yeah, I think you know, Mignolet has looked unsure of himself since the beginning of the season, I think, against Southampton at home. He, he looked... He made, I think, he made one good save, but he also did look very uncertain. Uh, the first goal on Saturday, you would say he he was at fault for. But again, the, you would also have to say it's a collective thing from Liverpool not defending set pieces, and this this goes beyond whatever individuals are, are selected in Liverpool's defense. You have to say at this at this stage, like Rogers came out afterwards on Saturday and said. They didn't have this problem last season, conceding goals from set pieces. Well, they conceded 50 goals in the Premier League last season. Uh, they conceded a fair few. Uh, you look back to remember the, the game against Everton and Goodison, where they were conceding set piece goals. This has been a problem. Uh, this is, a, and it hasn't been fixed, no matter what. They, and what Rogers says about working on the training ground, it hasn't. Liverpool don't look like a team that are 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 organised correctly defensively and that's the manager's responsibility and whichever players come in or come out it ultimately boils down to whether the manager is capable of that or not
3: Mm. Now one of the guys who um, I don't think didn't cover himself in glory last season is Daniel Lager obviously he left the club um, is now back in Denmark uh, has given an interesting interview to a TV program over there, where he says a couple of things about Rogers. Uh, I mean, he he says Rogers is an incredibly talented man and extremely competent coach, uh, but he also says he didn't feel he was appreciated there. Rogers didn't appreciate, uh, you know, the good things that he did, and he says maybe where it went wrong between me and him is that I'm very direct. I say things as they are, and I uh, also expected people are that way towards me. Maybe it's wrong to expect that. So. I think we can maybe see what is getting at. Rogers is a guy who is a diplomat. You know, he likes to maybe get on with players. Um, He he certainly likes to praise players in public. Anyway, we've seen that element of him. Is there maybe a a risk that Liverpool's squad is a bit on the big side now for that type of management, the kind of management where you're telling everyone they're great when at the end of it you have to leave more than half of them out for every game and, and quite a lot of them are just going to be a little bit annoyed by it?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think you have to be, you know, one of these taking as uh, taking the word of one player as as the accurate representation of how a dressing room feels about something is always risky because football is all about people, you know, players being dissatisfied depending on whether they play or not and finding reasons for it. There is a pattern of certain, you know, Pepe Reina was a player who didn't seem to be very happy working under Rodgers in Rodgers' first season. A number of players, Stuart Downing, being one of them, who, who seemed to be confused by the things Rodgers had said in public about them uh, when they when they were still Liverpool players. Um, so I do think it it is something that he he has he has a tendency to do. Uh, keeping them happy is again when when Liverpool are winning when they have a small squad. As you say, it's an easier thing to do. But I think. Uh, it's going to be trickier, but it, the the thing that matters is whether they're winning games or not. And if they win games, then this this won't matter. But if they start, if they keep playing as they've been playing recently, then these things will become an issue because players will look like they're the ones who are getting getting the blame for it. Mignolet looks like he's going to be in the firing
2: line next,
0: uh, and and they'll wonder um, how much you know how much how much accountability the manager has to take.
2: You mentioned Stephen Jarrod earlier. Dion is Jarrod now a weak link in that team?
0: yeah uh, I think I think that's that's obvious I think he isn't he, he no longer has the the legs to compensate for uh, his inability to really control a game he's not he's not the uh, player who can sit at sit at the kind of base of the midfield in front of the fence and dictate the tempo of a game I don't think it's was what, what he does um, and without that, Sort of dynamic surge. Uh, it's it's hard to know what what he what he's bringing to this.
2: He was getting a lot of sorry to cut across, you, Dan, He was getting a lot of praise last year from most of the season for actually well doing just that, or, or compensating for um, the aging legs with a slightly more cerebral cerebral quality to his play, and, and certainly more discipline to his positional play. Did you not even buy into that last year?
0: Well, I think last year when Liverpool were on the on the offensive he was he was very good in that position at helping things as they Liverpool attacked and they went forward and you know everything was was dynamic and forward looking and they still were conceding the same amount of goals but they scored so many goals that they they overcame that problem. That's not happening at the moment. And it actually if you look back to the key games at the end of the season against you know especially against Chelsea when Gerard's you know after the slip, Gerard's head went completely. Uh, and he was just taking long range shots and trying to be the hero again. And he was doing everything you wouldn't want a person, a player who is, who is meant to be playing the position he is playing in, to do. He was, he was giving the ball away cheaply. He was, he was being rash. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to knit, knit the game together, which is what you would expect. He can still hit the uh, fantastic forty, fifty yard pass, but again, it doesn't, it doesn't really come. It's not logical when he does it. It it, you know either comes off or it doesn't come off. But how many times it is one of the great cliches in football now? When you see Gerard give the ball away and somebody and the commentator says an uncharacteristically misplaced pass from Gerard. You know he does it so often it can no longer be described as uncharacteristic. Uh, But it's still it's still for some reason that's 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 he he kind of is seen as somebody who doesn't give the ball away. Uh, I think this season. Without the ability to score goals, um, he, he's looked lost. And even against Tottenham, when they played well, things slowed down when they when they came to Gerrard. And but the problem they have at the moment is they don't have any replacement for him either.
2: Yeah, true enough. Dion, listen, great stuff. So thank you, Cheers. The point about Rogers and European football being a part of their season now—it's it's quite staggering that he's brought this up as an excuse already. Albeit it was. It seems to be proffered to him in the press yeah, conference. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but um, you know,
3: you don't have to accept the excuse. That it's proffered to you, but yeah, I do. I do think it was probably mm, the Champions League game probably didn't help. You know something like that.
2: It's interesting though that jo- this is something that Jose Mourinho brought up last year. I remember watching it. I think he brought it more than once. But I remember watching a football focus interview and it was all about how their he's best pals with Brendan and Brendan this, Brendan that. Brendan was great when he was with me. Brendan this, that, and the other. But he did quite pointedly say, "Well, it's it's nicer, Brendan, not to have Champions League. Have essentially have weeks and weeks and weeks of preparing his team." For specific Premier League games, not all of us necessarily have that luxury. Mm. You could see that as Mourinho being Mourinho, but you could also say that maybe he he had a point there. If you want to win the Premier League, it's probably a good idea not to be involved in any European competition. Well, you,
3: I mean, you could say that, but as far as I know, every single Premier League winner um, has, has, been. has been involved in Europe. <laughs> so it's just it's usually something that a good team good team plays in top competitions has to play a lot of games. I mean, you do you have a bit of sympathy for Rodgers in that he's. They they obviously had a quite an unusual summer where they lost the, their best player by by miles, and then they brought in a lot of players to replace him, uh, players who aren't really familiar with what kind of a team they are, what they've been doing, what was working for them last season, and need to learn that. And obviously, the more time you can spend in training with those players, uh, the better. Um, and where you know maybe it's it's almost a pity that that didn't happen last season. You know they have the opportunity to work all during the week with players. Um, maybe they didn't. They integrate a bit faster, but you know,
2: just enjoy enjoy the Champions League. It's a pretty good competition. This is
3: this is what happens when you're a good team. Yeah. So you got to keep uh, you got to keep going. All the all the best teams do it, and you don't want to start moaning about having to be one of the best teams. Because I mean. Uh, I suppose with that kind of attitude you won't be one for long
2: If you're on the hunt for more All-Ireland final reaction Usher McConville and Anthony Moyles popped in earlier you can have a listen to that Right now we're joined by the Guardians Stuart James who witnessed the incredible scenes at the King Power Stadium Stuart it's, uh, Interestingly Pearson afterwards seemed to suggest that it was quite detailed. We talked about how the players were talking, but it seemed as though Pearson was a man with a plan. He, d- he didn't seem too taken aback by the fact that his team had managed to trump Manchester United. Was he co- as confident-sounding, as assured-sounding in his press conference?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, he basically spoke about the fact that they'd um, looked at how United had played the week before against QPR, noticed that they played this midfield diamond, and, uh, you know, what impressed me is I think lots of um, managers would probably have thought how on earth can we counteract that? We'll have to go a different way and get lots of people behind the ball. And Pearson's take on it was quite simple, really. He decided that he'd set Leicester up in exactly the same formation and go man for man with United, which is pretty brave, really, considering who United have got, especially going forward. Um, so, yeah, without doubt, they had a plan and, uh, and it worked spectacularly. And, and of course... You know, the United players and many United fans were very upset with the with the first penalty, which they felt was the turning point. But in fairness to Van Hal, he didn't use that as an excuse and you know, I think even if that goal goes in as it did at three two, then um you still don't expect Manchester United to go on and um you know and lose the game in the manner that they did.
3: Even the fact that Pearson sits up in the stands like a rugby coach is quite unusual, um well, very unusual among football managers. Is it a sign of an original cast of mind, do you think?
1: And the fact he sits in the stand, yeah, it's, uh, he's done that for quite a while. Um, I think it came about as I understand it initially because he was um, sent off in a game when he had a row in the touchline area with one of the officials uh, the fourth official and uh, ended up getting sent to the stand and actually realised that um, he had a far better view up there and was able to uh, you know, see the pattern of the game much better and, and now he uh, you know, he quite enjoys it. He sits up there with Steve Walsh, the assistant manager, with the other assistant manager Craig Shakespeare down on the touchline and um, I mean, it does always amuse me, really. I think you've, if you've ever spent any time in the dugout, and uh, and I have, albeit uh, uh, sort of lower down the levels, um, uh, the view's pretty awful from there. Um, and so Pearson's got that you know, that chance to sort of take it all in from up high, and, and I don't see that changing uh, anytime soon. I guess the other good thing is you don't get caught up, perhaps, in the emotion of the game so much down there. Um, so he has a more... Uh, uh, a more detached view of everything, and uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at the start they've made so far, I can't see change changing anything. Eight points in five games, and they played three of the top five on Man United. So um, incredible, really.
3: What about from your own position, the stand? Where did you think things broke down for Manchester United in that incredible last half hour?
1: Yeah, and it was incredible. I mean, to see them concede four goals in in twenty you know, odd minutes was uh, was extraordinary. I mean. Yeah, I think if maybe if they had held on after Herrera's third for a little bit, would Leicester have been able to get back into it? I'm not so sure. The only thing I'd say is that Vardy caused some problems all afternoon and United had big, big issues in the full back areas where they just never looked comfortable and, and Leicester clearly played on that. That's how they got their first goal, um, when uh, Vardy did brilliant running into the right channel. and uh, you know, the second goal came from him going into the going into the left channel. It's I think they they, they realised that there were weaknesses in that area, and let's be honest, we all know that United at the back at the moment it's not it's not a Man United of old. They've lost Edrevidic, Ferdinand, um, from from uh, you know from the back four that we've sort of come to know over the years, and, and quite simply at the moment the, the players in their place aren't good enough. Um, you know, Johnny Evans went off early on. I think a big question marks about Evans personally. Um, Chris Smalling, not convinced he's a Manchester United player. Um, but you can't pin it all on the defence. I mean they lost their way in midfield as well. That midfield diamond I think it looks great going forward. Um, what's it like when you haven't got the ball if you've got, you know, Barcow, Van Percy, Rooney, Di Maria all going forward. Herrera perhaps to a lesser extent and perhaps it leaves them a bit exposed. But, you know, that said, you'd still expect Man United three one up to see the game out. But it just unraveled so badly and they got that momentum, the moment can be absolutely got the third. You, you started thinking, hang on a minute, there's something really on here. Um, but it was still surreal, I've got to say that, to see Leicester you know, getting a fourth and then a fifth. And If the game had gone on another ten minutes, I think United, I think United would have conceded again. Um, a bizarre match, one that I don't think I'll ever... I've never
2: seen anything like before, to be honest. Yeah, and I could be wrong on this one, uh, and I'm maybe forgetting one or two games, but I don't remember too many matches uh, under David Moyes unravelling in that way. Now, a lot of them just started badly and continued to be fairly flat. That happened quite regularly. But just in terms of how... Manchester 3-1 up a certain Manchester United supporting friend of mine was talking about possibly winning the league Stuart Uh, by the end of the the, I think they were happy enough with Champions League qualification by the end of the game but the optimistic United supporters would say well look we're never going to have the greatest defence in the world but if we can just tighten up a little bit look at all this uh, attacking play that we can uh, that we can execute
1: yeah, it is a bit odd, isn't it? I just don't know. I mean, look, going forward, they look sensational in Henry's goal. Yesterday was incredible. power played very well. He's lucky enough to score, set up first. But it just doesn't feel like there's any sort of balance to it, really. It's almost like exhibition football, you know. However many you score, we'll get one more. Um, and I don't know, you know, United have always had such a rich tradition of fantastic attacking football, but... I wouldn't say it's been, you know, cavalier to the point of not worrying about defending. I mean, in the past, a game like that, I can't help thinking four or five years ago, United would have been three-one up, and they'd have either won four or five-one, or they, you know, they wouldn't have conceded again. It would have been the end of the match, um, and that, you know, balance just doesn't seem right to me. All the more so because. You know, it's highlighted further, I think, by the fact that the defence, you know, individually, they aren't good enough. Collectively, they aren't good enough. Individually, they aren't. I just still feel it was a huge oversight in the summer not to prioritise signing a top-class central defender. You know, if you put someone like Hummels in that team, um, I think it would make, you know, a massive difference. Uh, But, you know, as things are, and obviously it's even worse now because Evans is out injured. I don't know how serious that problem will be, but he left the ground on... Crutches. Phil Jones is still out with his hamstring. Um, they now miss, uh, you know, the young lad Black is going to be out now, suspended for a game. Um, it's all a bit
3: of a, it's all a bit of a mess, really. The other uh, issue, I suppose, yesterday was uh, Wayne Rooney, uh, who Louis van Gaal has says has said will play. He and my captain shall always play. Um, but it looks as though he's not going to be playing up front because Van Gaal has also said he thinks Falcao can do a better job there, uh, and he seems to like uh, Van Persie. As well, so Rooney probably be playing uh, behind these or at the tip of a diamond as he was yesterday. Which is a role with, with different responsibilities uh, for Wayne Rooney. How convincingly do you think he, he fulfilled them yesterday?
1: Yeah, I mean he was asked before the game, wasn't he, what his rationale was for leaving that matter, which surprised a lot of people because he's been you know playing well of late, um, uh, and uh, and he you know basically said that he uh, he wanted. He didn't want Rooney to be playing up top. He obviously had to accommodate Falcao, somehow, and he felt that Rooney wasn't so effective as a striker. He was, you know, better deployed in a deeper role. But, I mean, yeah, he only had to look at Rooney's body language yesterday. He looked so, as the game started unraveling, he just looked so frustrated, you know, turning around berating others. And, of course, part of that's his wheel to win, you know, which makes him the player he is. But, yeah, it's a different it's a different role for him. And I guess it was almost inevitable in a way, because, you know, if you're going to play Van Persie and Falcao, you can't. Realistically, accommodate Rooney up top as well, um, and then you've got Dean Maria as well. That, that's you know that's part of the issue, and I guess one of the things that we we're all wondering when they went on that transfer squad, you know, near the end of the window, um, they've got an amazing uh, you know array of attacking players, but but how on earth does does uh, Van Gaal find a way of accommodating them all, and does he accommodate them all to the detriment of what's going on you know behind them in midfield and at the back? Yep. Um, it's you know it's going to be interesting to see how it all how it all pans out, but, you know, I think the other worrying thing at the moment is, let's be honest, it's not been the toughest start for the season on paper. They've played three, they've played all three promoted clubs, um, you know, and haven't really come up against anyone yet, but I've been disrespectful to those they have faced. I think that's the worry as well. It's clearly going to take time and um, I'm sure we'll get that time. You know, I don't, think, I don't, think, uh, uh, these words might come back to me, but I don't see, you know, United doing anything in front of in the way they did with Moyes last season. I think they'll realise this is part of the a project now but it might take longer to sort out than some United fans would have hoped.
2: And it's fun to watch anyway. Stuart James, thanks a million.
1: Cheers, bye bye. Flame hair, flame flame hair, hair of truth. truth, Mr Ken
2: early.
3: Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to fight someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about. On yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan
2: Rogers. That's where it comes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. How much do you give a fuck? Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now, for you give it up. So what we have at the moment with Louis Van Gaal is a. Much more hyped, much more respected version of Ozier Dede. <laughs> um, we'll score three, you score five, but yeah. sometimes we'll score five and you'll score three, and we we'll end up mid table.
3: It, 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 yeah, I mean, it is a bit reminiscent. Um, I think these players Manchester United have. I think it's a higher level version. Mm-hmm. I think you know, Klinsman, Klinsman What have you Klinsman got Kofield against
2: Edi Dimitrescu? Him. I'm not sure Klinsman?
3: Dimitrescu did it over as long a period of time. Some of these Nicky
2: Barnby, you're always having a vote Nicky
3: Barnby. Players have. But yeah, I mean they, they, they were obviously an unstable team. Um Osir Dilas ended up losing his job. I don't think I, I mean obviously if things keep going the way they are for Van Hal. I mean as Stuart was, was mentioning there, um the start has not been good. They have they've put five points for five. Who's games. in more
2: trouble? Manchester United or Liverpool? I'm not talking about managers losing jobs or anything alarmist like that, just in terms of their their Champions League aspir their aspirations to qualify for the Champions League or launch bid who's who's looking in worst well I don't shape. think
3: they're both going to make it. Yeah, you know I th- I don't I don't know if they're both going to make it because you know once you look at the table and who's up there Arsenal, you know <laughs> Arsenal are up there. People have been people are kind of hammering them. You know Wenger already looking embattled, losing Dortmund, but there they are. You know that you know that they're going to be up against Southampton pretty yep. soon. They just have they you know the fact is. Arsenal may always fall short but never far short and uh you've got Manchester City who are who are more powerful I think the need of the Man United. you've got Chelsea who are clearly way way better so it's hard to see both Liverpool and Man United doing it and maybe that um, that European thing is going to be uh, I mean they've they've obviously got to integrate new players so got to figure out what how this team is supposed to play that's a huge thing but at least they have the luxury of time in the training ground. Not that it seemed to do them a lot of good this week, but you know, maybe losing a game like that in a sense. As long as you get these losses out of the way early in the season, maybe it focuses minds a little bit. Um, you know, there's still the potential, I think, for them to have a very good season. But I mean, it is draining. It's, 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 it's. It's, it's, it affects your confidence for something like that to happen. You can never quite feel secure. There's always a little bit of doubt. Are we about to do that again? Are we about to have another meltdown here? It's it's not something the that the Ferguson of, teams... With yeah. the Ferguson teams, it was the other way. It was it was a kind of a sense of inevitability about we'll get the winning goal late on. The other team felt it too. Now
2: it's kind of more, well... There's also an assumption that the players all have huge respect for Louis van Gaal. And the sense is that they do, but you get they're not going to care too much about his previous triumphs or his incredible aura um if he <laughs> doesn't deliver results and trophies and loads of money for them
3: you see i think فرهاد is is quite straight with the players and i don't i think he'll like you know he will drop players and tell them bluntly if he doesn't think they've been good enough and it's difficult to argue with him because he's often right about these things um i mean he has been faded outside and obviously the, the players have a different view of the manager from, from from that which the rest of the world has. Sometimes they might like him more than the rest of the world does and sometimes they don't quite agree with the laurels that are being eaten. So, I mean, it's, it's not just in football clubs. I mean, you remember there was a time when Bertie Hearn was addressing, uh, was it the Joint House of Congress? and The, the, the Joint House of, the, the House of Commons? This is
2: the, the actual Bertie, Hearn, and not Bertie the, Hearn, not the dog character who appears in the Barry Egan interview with Twink. No. <laughs> All right. Okay, I just wanted to confirm it was the actual Bertie Hearn you're talking it about. It was so.
3: the actual Bertie Hearn. But, you know, as as he was being faded abroad, uh, you know, by these uh, powerful uh, institutions, his personal popularity at home was plummeting. You know, he'd, he'd <laughs> never been more popular at home. Uh, but, you know, the rest of the world was still... I mean, he was able to parlay that into... A quite a, quite a lucrative career for a
2: while, wasn't he? Going
3: around the world telling people how to run their companies. We're
2: getting very, you know, people, there were videos emerging from speaking to powerful leaders in whatever country it was, and uh, there, there were articles of how much you would get generally get paid for that kind of thing. Yeah, we're yeah. like, ah, oh, no, this is unbelievable.
3: You know, that's an example of how sometimes uh, the the view from outside is different from the view from inside.
2: You can check out all the other Irish Times shows, IrishTimes.com forward slash podcast. Drop us an email here, SecondCaptains at IrishTimes.com. You can tweet us at SecondCaptains. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we do genuinely appreciate you taking the time and listening to us today. So cheers for that, thank you, Ken.
3: Thank you, too. Anne.
2: We'll talk to you again soon. How long has that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never got home. They never got home. They never got home. Those those those
1: boys.